can be a great person, a well-intentioned person, a loving person, a caring person, a person who wants to see racism dismantled and still have to have that conversation with yourself about the moments when you did hurt people, when you did walk away from a situation because it made you uncomfortable. I've been thinking a lot about the topic of equity in schools recently. It can be a challenging but worthwhile focus for schools. But if equity work is going to be meaningful, it requires more than just a passing commitment of time and energy, more than just inviting a speaker or distributing materials. It means that a community as a whole is going to take a hard look in the mirror. So what does an equity process look like, and what does equity work entail? I reached out to an expert and an inspiring speaker who's made this topic her life's work. I'm Dr. Darnisa Monte-Jackson, and I'm the president and co-founder of the Disruptive Equity Education Project, also known as DEEP. And we were working uh, at a conference in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. I'm seeing by the way that the audience connected with you and reacted to you and like the sense of empathy and understanding that was generated there. And I think that that's, it was really admirable because when we talk about things like equity, um, sometimes it can be really, I don't want to say threatening, but it can be really Uh, There's a lot of energy in that, right? And there's a lot of personal issues that come up with that. And sometimes it can be self-implicating when you talk about something. And I really felt like I was impressed with the way that you had people in the audience think about the topic and themselves. So um, before we get into what that work that you do is, like, tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to focus on this issue and do this work. Mm. Thanks so much, Sean. Uh, One of the things I think has been really important to me is I really think that life informs practice. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I came to equity work in in a way that I think many leaders or educators of color come to the work, which was the work showed up on me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my experience of being a Black American female growing up in Brooklyn, New York City, being educated both in a private school setting and in a public school setting made it very apparent to me that I was never going to be able to opt out of or not have a difficult conversation about my racial experience in places where people were having a fantastic time. Right. And so for me, a lot of my work was informed by my own experiences of schooling. And then later, uh, my own experiences in education, being a classroom teacher, I was a fourth grade teacher, mm-hmm. as well as thinking about what were some of the difficult conversations we had to have with our, with ourselves, right, as we thought about how we would support students and support families, I realized that there was a conversation that wasn't happening, mm-hmm. which was one around self-forgiveness, but also about a reckoning. Right. And I think there are a lot of educators out here who don't know that even in our best intentions, we may still be doing harm. And right. being able to have a powerful conversation like that I thought about how wonderful would it have been if some of my teachers had had those conversations or those experiences, how I could have experienced school differently. I mean, being an only, and I define only as the only person of color or a self-identifying person of color in a class. And the moment when a question comes up about people of color and the entire class turns to you, Almost as if you're the universal expert. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure at all. Or having folks have belief gaps on me. The belief gap being the difference between what folks believed I could do as a student coming from East New York, Brooklyn, 
versus what they thought other students from other more affluent areas could do. And then having to always justify my intelligence, justify my viewpoint or mindset, and having folks ask, where did you get that from? Almost as if I couldn't be an originator of the idea or the thought. You know, I like the way you talk about the idea of a reckoning. From my own experience, like I was raised to be an open-minded and accepting person, but I, I think that meant more I think I, I gave myself more credit for what that means. Um, and as my family developed, I have my brother and um, is married to an African-American woman and my nieces and nephews are black. And, um, you know, I, at first I thought, well, this is giving me this great insight. Like I have these, this, this diverse family. I have these people that I can reach out to to talk about the experience. But what I realized is that it's really still hard to understand and really still hard to have that conversation, even with your like closest loved ones, about some of the implications. Um, my brother once related to me, my, a really powerful experience in my life is I was with my niece, uh, who is African-American, and we were in a cannoli shop in Little Italy. And I was standing there because I really wanted to buy her a cannoli, and I'd been talking up the cannolis. And then I realized that they kept skipping me, and they weren't serving me. And I, I wasn't even thinking about it because I was just holding my niece and she was a baby. She's like a two and a half year old baby. And like, well, I should say three because she was talking to me about it. But, um, but they skipped me. And when I called them on it, I realized, oh my gosh, it's because I'm holding my niece. And my reaction was to be instantly enraged. My reaction was to want to fight immediately. Um, and my brother kind of reached over and saw it and he came and put his hand on my shoulder and my sister-in-law kind of pulled me aside and said, listen, you can't go to war every single time you see or feel this, but you can, you have the right to acknowledge it and you have the right. And, and, um, and that just started a conversation. Like, I just, I'm like, what do you do when you're in that situation and how often does this happen? And I, I just wanted to know more and I felt so offended. And my sister-in-law said to me, she's like, do you feel offended because of racism or do you feel offended because racism affected you? And I was like really challenged by that question. Like, I, I guess I knew things like that happened. I think it was just really frustrating that it happened to me. And you really kind of have to pull apart. There's so much to pull apart in that little interaction and understand and, and realize I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn just to um, from my, my loved ones in this situation. And I, I don't think that's like, an epic life-changing experience that everyone's going to learn from. But it was like this point for me that made me understand how little I knew and how much there was to truly understand. So when you were talking about uh, the reckoning, why don't you describe the reckoning for us? Like what's the reckoning that you're hoping we can create? That's right. The reckoning for me really is happening on two levels. And I think it really disrupts some assumptions that we, that we make about what it takes to do equity work well. Mm -hmm. The first thing that normally happens is we assume that we can give leaders, I mean, I'm not just talking about educators, we assume that we can just give people content and that just by giving content that people can change their practice, change their praxis, immediately have an aha moment and then everything changes after that. And what we normally don't think about is the fact that our practice, our praxis, our leadership, our interactions are nothing more than an external representation of who you are on the inside. 
whether right. you know it or not. So mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a bad piece living within all of us and that we're trying to reckon or exercise our badness. Right. But I think it's important to name that transformation cannot happen in absence of this reckoning of who you are in the work. It's the mm-hmm. self-implication that you are always both the hero and the villain in this story. Right. A lot of us want to look in the mirror and we only want to name the good pieces of ourselves. I'm a progressive person. I'm a well-intentioned person or I'm a conservative person who has these great values. And then we use that hyping up of the positive Mm -hmm. to almost bury the pieces of ourselves that we're afraid to say. So the reckoning, right, is the realization that are both that you can be a great person, a well-intentioned person, a loving person, a caring person, a person who wants to see racism dismantled and still have to have that conversation with yourself about the moments when you did hurt people, when you did walk away from a situation because it made you uncomfortable, naming that you did have privilege in a moment to not have to engage. And that is actually what leads to the transformation in our practice because you actually now know why your practice may need to change. Without that personal reckoning, it feels like equity is being done to you as a good person. Right. And not for your behalf, for the behalf of students and family. I think that's a very powerful discussion to have. And I think one of the things I really liked when I heard you speak at the conference was the idea that the work needs to be done by us within us. Right. And I think like you were saying about delivering content, like activities about equity aren't geared towards us so that we can identify people who aren't, who aren't being equitable. It has to come from within us through self-reflection. That's the, that's where we, we can do this work. And, but if we do sessions and we're trying to like teach people, like I'm going to change you or um, teach people kind of like you said, we're like, once we know this now we'll act better and different without like touching your, your underlying biases. And I think that was, that's what makes it so powerful. It's like, how, how much work are you willing to do and how many of the difficult places are you willing to go in order to like explore this topic? That's exactly it. Let's talk about just in general. And I think we, this is going to sound, I think like a, a kind of a, a basic question, but if a school is looking at the idea of equity as a discussion or as an area of focus for a year, what's, what are the overall benefits of doing this for a school or an institution? The overall benefits of doing that. Yeah. Like, well, as a community, if a, if a community wants to, as an individual, we can explore this, but taking on that task as a community, if we say a school is going to look into this idea of equity and we're going to have a speaker and talk about it as a community, like, like, and I feel like the answer is out there, but I think it's, it's bigger than that. Like, what's the overall benefit to a community by going through this process together? Is that a better way of saying it? Yeah, that, that, that resonates a little bit differently for me. So thank you for that reframe. I think the overall benefits is that you, one, end up having the impact of increasing the emotional quota or the emotional intelligence of your entire school committee. And so when I say that, I don't mean that people aren't brilliant or smart or not emotionally able. 
But equity really does require some emotional intelligence skills. It assumes that you can be self-aware of what's happening within you. It assumes that you're able to reflect on the multiple perspectives, right? The multiple ways adults and students can experience a building and assumes that you can regulate and manage yourself in those moments to not necessarily get angry, but to get curious around why different people have different knowledge of different people's lived experiences. Right. So I think the benefit that we don't usually talk about is that you increase relational trust. You increase people's ability to handle difficult conversations and to sit in multiple perspectives. Yeah. Also benefit because adults that do not feel like they belong, adults that do not feel relational trust cannot create belonging for students. Right. You can't create that with which you have never had. And so just an unintended benefit is you end up creating an adult culture that actually really can uplift and support different student needs because most schools, our want is to be able to do that type of storytelling, that type of relational work. But the way in which school works, like there's barely time to go to the bathroom, (laughs) let alone build relational trust with people you don't teach with or plan with daily. And so by doing work at a building level, you break down silos. You are able to have difficult conversations with folks who have different lived experiences, which ultimately ends up supporting how we can model that type of culture for students. So I think those are some of the big things off the top of my mind. The things we normally think about, though, is a commitment to equity means we are committing ourselves to really having a difficult conversation about our data. Many schools fear data, but data is one of those things that you can misinterpret through your own lens of bias. Oh, for sure. So being able to disaggregate data and talk about race and talk about marginalization really supports a school committee, a school community, excuse me, and being able to continuously improve itself. When people know that data is not terrifying, that we're not using data to shame or blame anyone, that we're using data to be intentional about hitting milestones, about naming strategic processes to make equity happen, your whole building's ability to use data as a tool becomes this amazing thing for trying to increase student outcomes. Right. Lastly, what it does is it calls us to action differently as we partner with community. Equity is about understanding how different students experience the world differently but we often don't think of how students' families contribute to how our students experience our own school. And like a commitment to equity is also a different commitment to family engagement and community engagement, which starts to do that village work, right? We often say it takes a village to raise a child, but in the way that we've become as a society, we have seen the deconstruction of villages for the efficiency of silos, Right. Because villages often don't feel efficient. Right. right? That's, that's like some of the mindset. Yeah. There. yeah. So I think recreating a village of support that can contribute those different stories, those different experiences around education, around communication, really helps the community to flourish in a new way as well. I, I wanted to name some examples that aren't yeah. the traditional ones I we think, think about, but they're all there. 
I think it's great that you bring up the idea of data too, because it seems it seems inert and without bias, and it seems like so numerical and scientific and mathematical. But like our lens and the way we look at that and the way we interpret that is so very much caught up in who we are. Um, and I think that that is a really powerful example for if you have if you can. Um, develop that community. If you can break down those silos, if you can, like you said, having a relational trust will allow you to look at data and not feel intimidated by it. I think sometimes we're afraid of data because we're feeling like we're going to be implicated by it rather than we're going to be informed by it sometimes. But when you go and work with schools, and we were just talking about how you've worked across the country at different schools, um, overall, what are the, the biggest hurdles and challenges you face as you begin this journey with schools? When you start that discussion, what kind of obstacles and barriers are going to have to like maneuver around or overcome? Uh, some of the obstacles and barriers that I've seen really is that a lot of us have this want and this sense of urgency around doing equitable change. And then you realize that so many people in the school community define equity differently. So sometimes one of the biggest challenges is we assume that we're all speaking the same language and we're not. So it's making sure that everyone is normed. So when you say cultural relevance, when you say cultural proficiency, when you say multi-tiered support systems, when you say positive behavior interventions, when you say, you know, any yeah. of those things that really relate to differentiating your practice and support different students, was everyone normed in the same reading as you? Do we have the same understanding of what that means? So mm -hmm. I think the first barrier is just breaking the assumption that everyone knows what you mean when you say, mm -hmm. this year we're going to have a culturally relevant strategy to increase outcomes for all students. <laughs> That's great. What do you mean by increase? What do we mean by culturally relevant? And what do we mean by strategic intervention, right? Just asking questions like that sometimes can be really helpful. I think the other one, and I don't want to hurt any of our leaders' feelings who are listening in, um, this is not a jab. It's some feedback with love. The conditions for leadership to do this work well are essential. Most of the work that I do outside of doing formal workshops with schools is I executive coach the entire leadership suite, if you could imagine, for education. Superintendent, your school board and committee, your assistant superintendents, your assistant principals, your instructional leadership team, your total leadership team, your admin councils. I am coaching teams like that every day because we often assume that leaders get licensure and certification and that they then know how to go forth and do. Yeah. Here's things that our licensure programs don't normally do. Teach you how to strategically vision for an initiative that includes having difficult conversations on taboo topics. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the course curriculum on that one from someone. <laughs> you know, no jab to our licensure programs. I'm just saying that's not something we knew we needed. But now I'm I know we need it from all the work that I do. Um, so the conditions for leadership are, do our leaders know how to just strategically vision? Mm -hmm. Equity is multi-generational work that will take building capacity of people at every level to continue the work when we are no longer here. And so that type of multi-generational project requires that you don't just give me the two to five year vision 
I need to know what this might look like over 30 years. I think when people are listening to this podcast, that would be helpful because I think we know for any kind of school uh, professional development or all like in services or workshops that we do, um, the, what you get out is going to depend upon how much, how much you invest in between those visits, in between those meetings where we discuss it, right? And I think that sometimes what can be hard for people looking at uh, an initiative focusing on equity is like the depth and the amount of work and the long-term commitment. Like, I think people are really concerned about like, they don't want to do it poorly. They want to do a good job. But the, the time frame and the scale of that is, is bigger than say, learning how to use an iPad. I, I feel like the, the duration and the commitment to this is, is significant and meaningful, but it's not something that's going to just, you're, they're not going to have you come and speak once and then this is going to be over, right? Like, like how deep is the commitment to doing that? I, you know, it'd be interesting to hear more about like the, the variations of people's understanding of the depth of that work when you go into schools, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I wonder if when you talk to schools about it, if you see them have the realization that this is bigger than I thought this was going to be. Yeah, I mean, the first step normally in my work is managing expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's not managing expectations for how much impact we can have. I think it's really important to name here the most dangerous thing that we can do as leaders when we say we, are, we want to do equity is to have a sense of urgency, but no competency to enact that urgency well. Mm-hmm. Urgency with no competency will do harm because you're deploying a really urgent group of people who may not have the skills that they need to be in integrity with the call to action. And not because they don't want to be in integrity. They just might not know what the expectations are to get there together. So then you end up with people burning themselves out. You end up with people of color traditionally being asked to lead the work because there's an assumption that people of color are experts in equity just because of our lived experiences, which is not true. Right. Um, right. And then folks don't get to be learners. People have to be doers when you have urgency in that way. So for me, I think the first managing of expectation is we cannot say in our first year of doing equity work, this year we're going to close opportunity gaps. We're going to decrease absenteeism. We're going to in- institute a whole new policy around restorative justice as we think about changing all of our content and curriculum to be culturally relevant. And that's all going to happen by school year 21-22. No, that is not all going to happen by school year 21-22. What, what will happen is you will have named that we have a vision. You will create the vision. And then we will create some value building training so everyone's on the same page. The first year of the work is always relational trust building because equity initiatives require collaboration. And I think when leaders hear that, it makes them think more about structures that feel manageable, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so you're telling me we might need some professional learning communities to be successful. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're telling me that we've got so many silos right now that there's no way for people to collaborate on what they're doing in their practice to then have this collaborative change. All right. So it sounds like we might need to do some structural shifting so that people are more likely to sustain all this training we're about to do. And then my response is, that's right. Right. Um, Of course, every school is different, but most schools try to do so much because students 
over the process of our long-term strategy are still failing, are still experiencing micro and macro aggressions, are still being bullied. And so we feel so apt to change the interpersonal interactions that we sometimes forget to do the system level change work that actually supports students and adults having different experiences in schools and with curriculum. And so I'm not saying to ignore the now, I'm not telling you to start an initiative that our current kindergarten class won't benefit from until 10th grade. I'm just saying when you make structural changes and when you build trust and when you create belonging with adults, it does actually have impact on your cultural climate on your school culture, which impacts how students feel championed for in classrooms. It's just not the traditional way that we think about change. Your test score change doesn't not normally come until five to seven years in. But the way students experience you, the way students see teachers of difference experience each other is modeling of care that equity requires. And we normally don't think about that piece of the work. But I also am inspired by what you're saying, because in doing all of that, in, in starting this equity work in, you know, like it, it's, yes, there's a racial component to it. And yes, there's a gender component to it. But the things that you're building in order to have those conversations are going to be positive in so many other regards. Right. Um, and it's like you said, looking at institutional practice, I find from my experience that institutional practice, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be a person who is causing, uh, who, who is creating troublesome practices within schools, like a policy that's been around for a long, long time, that over time as the community changes, that just doesn't serve the community as it's changed. Like, you have to have the vision to look at that. And you have to, like, you kind of really have to prepare yourself to start digging through what you've done in your practices and institution, in your policies, to extricate those things that existed before that now present a barrier, right? And, um, but I think that if you do the equity work that you're talking about, it's going to benefit us in so many different ways. It's going to benefit us in, like, how are we treating our high-achieving versus our low-achieving students? And how are we treating, like, female versus male sports? And how are we treating different communities of people, not just in education, but as they participate in activities, right? That like make the school experience for them. So I, I feel like, and, and I felt this when I heard you last time, like the idea here is that we are trying to build a sense of care, right? And um, if we do that, then we can be successful at equity. We will also be successful at many, many other things that we do. You know, if a school wants to get started with this conversation, let's say that they just are like, this is great, but I'm not sure how my community is going to deal with this. Or I'm like, they're, they're worried about the places because these are challenging conversations. Where do you think they should get started? I think the first step is having a critical conversation in and around your data and your community culture, right? So things like a culture climate survey, things like pulling up your state data to look at your achievement gap data, disaggregating your interventions and your suspensions by race, asking questions like, does my school have restorative justice practices? What are some of the policies, like the institutional things that might be creating some of the things I'm seeing in these data, like dress code Mm -hmm. or my master schedule? Mm -hmm. So how do students experience your building Things like choosing 
multiple populations of students. So you might have your honors track students, the students yeah. who are more tracked. You might have a student who's an English language learner. You might have a student who's got a 504 or some type of intervention plan, IEP. And then you might follow a student who's a new transfer, but you know, it's just coming from a different culture and then walk the building with them from the day. And how are they experiencing their classrooms? How are they experiencing the hallways? So those are really great places to start that feel action oriented. Yeah. Because starting the work without knowing the culture that you have to do the work within is dangerous. Yeah. So one of the things that Deep does, for example, is we developed an equity audit. So Deep is a company that not only supports schools and school communities, but we also have an entire data team that does a SWOT analysis of a current school or district's culture so that we can talk about the conditions for readiness, talk about the long-term planning, like where might you begin. It's always helpful to have someone external support you in naming your culture and helping you to define what's a really great start point that can be multiply impactful. I, I think it's really interesting that a team would come in and I see such value in that. When you were, when you were talking about that example of having a team come in to look in and do an audit, um, I, have you ever heard of David Foster Wallace's This Is Water story? He gave a commencement speech, but basically- oh, no, I haven't heard it, but I know who he is, yes. Right, like there's two goldfish in a bowl and another goldfish swims by and says, how's the water? And the two goldfish say- what the hell's water? Culture, it's all around you. Like you're so in it that sometimes you don't see the environment that you're in. Like you become blind to stuff that's around you. But I, I think that that would be really helpful uh, for a lot of people to just have somebody come and guide them through a process of reflection and, and uh, self-evaluation. So let's say that somebody wants to learn more about Deep and about the work that you do, or they're interested in talking to you about working with them. Where can they go and look to get more information? Okay, great. So uh, the best way to reach out to us is on our website. So our, our web address is www.digdeepforequity.org. And then on that page, you can see a little bit more about our theory of change, how we do this both-and work with districts, which is doing the personal work that supports the transformational change in practice, and then all the strategic uh, workshops and coaching that we do. But there's a contact page and there's a brief little survey that you can fill out that'll go straight to our team and then we'll reach out right back to you. So head to the website, go to the contact us and you just fill in those cells. It'll send a ping over to us and then we'll reach out to you within a week um, to just talk about your district or your school or your organization. We partner with nonprofits, for-profits and educational institutions. And we also work with boards and school committees. Right. We really want it to be holistic in, in our support. And so that's that's the best way to reach out to us and find out information about us. OK, that's super great. I hope others will have a chance to reach out to you and see some of the amazing things that you're doing. I hope they get a chance to see you speak. Um, so I um, and now, as is tradition on the So We've Been Thinking podcast, I just want to ask you a couple of random questions out here to kind of get a sense of who you are as a person. Sound good? OK, great. Sounds great. Question one, who is someone that you remember admiring as a young child? Uh, one of the people was my grandma, actually. Um, my dad's mom, Elizabeth Ann Singleton, so I always like to say her name. She's since passed on. But one of the things I loved about my grandma is it was her resilience. She was raised in the segregated South, 
and didn't have access to a lot of educational opportunities. And so uh, I grew up in a family that isn't necessarily traditionally educated in the way we might think, but listening to my grandmother tell stories and listening to how she talked about having to persevere through racism and then moving up during the one of the great migrations up north and then starting a family in New York City, it really, I think, was the catalyst for my want to tell stories because I come from a family where that's how everybody communicated our past and hopefully yeah. communicated our future. So my and grandma. Next question. Okay. Um, what's a moment in your life that was like caused you to pivot? Like it altered direction and gave you uh, like a new sense of purpose, right? Like an inflection point where you're like, this is it. I go in this direction. I have so many. How long is the show, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I'll start by saying this. I think it is a pleasure and a privilege to be broken. Yeah. To hit rock bottom. Um, and I've hit rock bottom a few times, even though I'm not that old. And it's not always a financial thing. Right. Um, so I think my pivots have at least have been in moments when I felt like there was nowhere else to go. Right. And I had to recreate and revision and redream on a different vision of who I could be so that I would never be in the experience that I was at the moment. And I've had some in education, I've had some in life, but I think probably one of the bigger ones that I always think about was when I started my first business, which was a tutoring and test prep company in New York City. So if those of you who love documentaries, you can check me out in that scope of my life in the mm -hmm. film Tested, which is all about the inequity of standardized exams. And... I realized that the company that I created that I loved and all the powerful work that we were doing was furthering inequity. I got to see for the very first time which families and students could afford tutoring and which ones couldn't. And that standardized exams are not really about content knowledge. It's how prepared are you to use your knowledge in a timed way with yeah. strategy and having families that could afford two to four thousand dollars a month for tutoring just for prep not even for yeah. content prep for testing prep yeah at the same time of families who needed that prep just as much but who struggled to afford 12 to 15 dollars an hour right i don't think there's anything wrong with struggling to afford 10 to 12 dollars i think the fact that there were folks who could afford 50 to 100 at the same time that people couldn't afford 12 to 15 was a really big pivot in my life. I, I could no longer lead a company that had this really great mission and vision, but know that it wasn't really helping to change the outcomes of black and brown students who looked just like me. I didn't have access to tutoring like that. Right. I didn't come, I don't come from a wealthy family. I'm the first in my family to graduate from high school. Right. One of the first, I think I'm the second. So it's, it's just, that was a moment where I said, it doesn't matter what I do. And I'm, and I'm not telling our listeners that that was a rock bottom. It was just a pivot. Right. Um, I dissolved that business and said, whatever I do next, I wanted to really be naming the systems of oppression. I wanted to really be focusing on dismantling things so that everyone is more likely to get what they need and not necessarily what they can afford. Right. Um, I think that's a great example for people because I think it's really hard when you find yourself doing work 
and you look and you realize that the work that you're doing is not in keeping with your values. I just really want to, I kind of want to end by saying, you know, when you gave your keynote and I was sitting there listening to it, right? And quite honestly, I was about to go give a, an eight hour day long workshop. So in my head, I had started out being like, how can I organize my thoughts? You know, like this is some downtime, Mm -hmm. but I thought that I was pulled into your conversation and I really felt like by the end of our 45 minutes, 50 minutes of a discussion that I was doing work on myself. And that was meaningful to me. The tone of your work and the questions that you asked had me digging inside of myself to be better. And I think that if we are willing to, as a school, get together and say, let's all look inside of us and our institution and our policies, that's work that's worth doing that's going to yield incredible results. The So We've Been Thinking podcast is sponsored by EdTech Teacher Innovation and EDU Events. Fresh off the success of our Chicago event in October, EdTech Teacher is offering three more events. Join us this November in Boston, in California in January, or join us in Montreal this March. For more information, go to edtechteacher.org slash events. 